This podcast is brought to you by Seekers Hub. To listen to the rest of our shows, please visit seekershub.fm. You can also subscribe to our weekly email newsletter called Compass, where we'll send the best of Seekers Hub's content straight to your inbox every single week. To get on the list, visit seekershub.org slash compass. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Bismillah wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man wa ala. Alhamdulillah, it is always, always refreshing is really the word to step foot across the border and to enter into this uh, country which compared to the other side of the border, as Sheikh Hamza Yusuf said, it's Canada. It's like the beautiful dew that is on the leaves in the morning. And um, it is refreshing to come into that such a society that you find people are closer to the fitrah, or at least you could say not as far away from it. And especially to come visit our dear brother, that everything that he said about the way that I feel about him is just really scratching the surface in a very, very serious way, is that he probably couldn't do anything really to ever that upset me enough to sever the relationship because I wouldn't let him do that. So he stuck with me, whether he likes it or not, for better or for worse. Uh, but it really is my honor to always uh, be here that with him and to try to support him in every way together and to work together for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for this project, which I believe is quite literally that one of the very, very most important projects that is happening worldwide and something that every single last one of us need to support in every way possible. Unlike a lot of the other talks that I give, Sheikh Faraz, he's, he's very latif and gentle in the way that he critiques me. I am actually have a few points here that I want to mention. I usually kind of just let it flow, and wherever it takes me, I go. Perhaps that's my Californian, laid-back, uh, Mauritanian, roaming nature. But I actually have a few things that I would like to say, three points in particular. And I, I think these three points are very important for every Muslim to understand, wherever they are on the face of this earth, but especially those that are living in the West, whatever that means, but geographically speaking, that let's focus on North America and the priorities of our community that on this side of the border and on the other side. And I really, really believe that there is an urgency in this particular time to take the dissemination of the prophetic inheritance seriously. And what I hope to see in the next 5 to 10, 15, 20, 50 plus years is a revival of this commitment. This is something that was part and parcel of the early generation's understanding of this deen. There's something about iman in the way that it relates to sacrifice. Iman is almost synonymous with sacrifice, or you could say sacrifice is synonymous with Iman. And we could take it back to the words of our Prophet himself, This is what Iman does to the one who possesses it. In other words, that it's not just about that faith, because there is constantly a circular type effect between the things that we do and the effect on the heart and then the faith that then grows as a result of that and the way that it affects the outward. So when we talk about the breakdown of the essential components of our deen, that of iman, islam, and ihsan, the reality is is that they're all interrelated. And yes, at times, we might study 
individual disciplines separately. But the fact of the matter is, they're all really one. And the proof of that is, if you take yourself back to the time of Rasulullah, the companions were not learning fiqh in the way that we learn it. They were not learning grammar in the way that we learn it. They were not learning any of the disciplines of the sharia or the ancillary sciences, the instrumental sciences in the way that we learn them. That for them, the focus was the living source, which was Sayyidina Muhammad. And that they, the oral transmission precedes the written transmission. It was their focus on him in which all of these various disciplines were reflected and that he, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was the one who, that ultimately was the conduit for them to be able to become individual sciences in and of themselves. And this is why that if we look at these meanings of iman, islam, and ihsan, iman is your faith, we all know that. And it's the foundation for both iman, islam, and ihsan. But also that Iman and Islam are the foundation of Ihsan. But if you want to reverse that equation, in order for you to reach the higher levels of Iman, you need Ihsan. In order for you to reach the higher levels of Islam, you also need Ihsan. Islam is mukammal. It helps you perfect the higher degrees of your faith. It helps you perfect the higher degrees of your practice. And this is why that the Sharia only takes quantity into consideration insofar as it is important for that outward dimension. The real issue here is one of quality. And this is the question that we all really need to think very deeply about. And perhaps the time, as some scholars have said, of living in the marhalatul ghutha'iya. We are living in the stage of the ummah of our Prophet is that even though the believers are many, is that they lack quality. So the question that should preoccupy our mind in this day and age when we have, we were talking on the way here, Sheikh Faraz was mentioning, is that his uncle came here in the 60s, in the early 60s. And we visited a masjid on our last tour, I think the time before the last that I was here. And it, this place was established in the 50s. And we were hearing stories about the way that things were. And unfortunately, is that having a critical mass of Muslims is very positive on one, from one standpoint, but also there is that a weakness that comes along with it, and it's the tendency for people to become lackadaisical. In other words, is that they expect someone else to do it. And of course, we have a concept of farkifaya, but we should really think very carefully about this concept of communal obligation and not let it limit us. The whole purpose of Fad Kifai is to stimulate us. Don't let it limit us and let your own soul, which oftentimes tends to be lazy, think that, oh, someone else is going to do it. That if we ourselves take the initiative, which is indeed a hard thing for human beings to do, and to assume the responsibility of understanding the importance of this affair. Without the prophetic inheritance, there is nothing that we can do. There is no way for us to move forward as a community. And the urgency that is here is very real because is that I don't want to speak only in a negative context. I want to speak warning ourselves about some of the dangers of neglecting this is important, but also in terms of the potential. The prophetic inheritance is that reality which includes all of 
these dimensions of Iman, Islam, and Ihsan. Everything that the Prophet transmitted to that early generation and then they transmitted to every generation after them. Is that it's that reality is that when that you absorb it at the depth of your being, that it be colors your heart in a way that then everything that you do is ultimately connected to the Rasul. At the level of belief, at the level of practice, and at the level of spiritual excellence. And this is really what we believe is the highest ideal of all is that we live up, that we strive to live up to. Is that the more that every single word that we utter, every single thing that we do, every single decision that we make, every single endeavor that we take part in, every single institution that we establish, every interaction with every person that we have, if that is colored with the ilth al-nabawi, with the inheritance of Rasulullah it will lead to maximum impact. Not only here in this world, but in the next. There will be true efficacy. It's a fancy word that simply means is that it will change people's hearts at the depth of their being if we indeed are sincere in what it is that we are doing. And the only way to do that is to be able to put yourself in an environment where you then receive it. And these days for my PhD work, I am that looking very closely at the Ihya al of Hujjat al-Islam Imam Ghazali which as Sheikh Faraz mentioned is one of the dearest books that I love to examine and to look into and to try to learn. And it's a lifelong process because Imam al-Ghazali is such a great thinker and such a systematic thinker is that when you take a first look at what it is that he's doing that you'll think that he's unintentionally being a bit elusive. But then you look a little bit deeper and you find that no, he intentionally was elusive for a deep wisdom. And there's a lot of details here, and one of them relates to how he incorporated that certain understandings into what he calls the ilm tariq al-akhirah. That is the knowledge or the science of the path of the hereafter. And this is of the utmost importance because when he presents this understanding, and I will say by way of prefacing these brief comments that I'll mention, is that you cannot understand Imam al-Ghazali, if you don't understand the Ihya, and this is his famous work, his magnum opus, the Ihya al translated as the revival of the religious sciences. And you cannot understand the Ihya al unless you understand a little bit about what is called tajdeed, which is revival, renewal. You cannot understand how tajdeed relates to Imam al-Ghazali and the Ihya al until you understand what Imam al-Ghazali presents as the ilm tariq al-akhirah, which is translated as the knowledge of the path of the hereafter. This is an incredibly deep conception of the religion. And that this is his unique way to renew the, the knowledge of his particular time, which essentially one of the primary aspects of renewal is a conscious attempt in later generations after the Prophet ﷺ to present the deen in a way contextualized for the people of that time whereby which that they can, that as closely as possible approximate the religious understanding and practice of the early generation. Simply put, it's a way for people to experience what their companions experienced. And Imam al-Ghazali does this in a very sophisticated way with what he calls ilm tariq al-akhirah. And he does so with a sense of urgency. And he is a rhetorical master 
And if you just open up the first page of the Hilum al-Din, and the way that he then gets into this topic, and how he says, Alhamdulillah, very quickly, whereas in other chapters it's drawn out in long praises of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then he sends salawat upon the Prophet very quickly, such that he doesn't even say sallam, he just says sallallah, which he was critiqued for. And then thirdly, that he seeks the help of Allah in authoring a book, what he wanted to revive the religion with. And then fourthly, he gets into the critique of the people of his time, primarily focusing on the scholarly class because they are the ones that craft the understanding of religion for the society, especially in earlier times. Now this is of course changing in our particular time, but through a that trickle-down effect, it relates to every other believer as well. And the amazing thing about the teachings of Imam Ghazali is that the closer that you analyze them, the less that you will have to see them as being contextualized and the more that you'll have to see them as, no, I need to fit myself to that conception. They are remarkably relevant for everyone in every time and every geographical location because he speaks about a lot of issues that are in a sense trans-historical. It's not about that particular juncture in history or that particular place that you are living. He is speaking about a reality of a not only our conception, but practice of religion that must be there. And that the thread in all of this is there is an absolute need for knowledge. Without knowledge, there is no way for us to do anything. And this is why in these 40 books... He begins with the book of knowledge. And what he does in the book of knowledge is amazing. It is mind-blowing. The way that he preserves a pristine, unadulterated conception of what knowledge truly is. And what it is that we should focus on. And the book of knowledge is a type of manifesto in a sense that then underlies every other book of the Hilum al-Din from book 2 all the way into book 40, on death and the afterlife. And what he does is, is that he puts in a hierarchy. And at the top of the hierarchy is this ilm tariq al-akhirah, the knowledge of the path of the hereafter. And essentially what that means is, is that you need to focus on what is most important for your religion. And in doing so, is that you understand that there are so many believers that end up approaching topics that will ultimately harm them. How much time does the average Muslim spend on in so, looking at something to do with social media? How much time do we spend reading comments of posts of other people? How much time do we spend being drawn into useless conversations of things that we have no right even entertaining that the idea of them, because we do not have the background that we need to even understand the conversation, let alone to be able to contribute to it. Whereas that if we would just realize, if we would focus on that these affairs that we know that we are going to be asked about, that we know that we are going to be taken into account for, and we make that the focus of our religious practice, our whole lives would change. Your life would change, your family would change, and as a result, your community would change. And so, like, his conception of knowledge, what he puts forth in the Tariq al-Akhirah, doesn't just relate to the type of knowledge that we study. It relates to every other aspect of our life. 
And that this is, a, again, another fancy word, is that they call the telos, or the teleology of Imam Ghazali. His focus ultimately is the hereafter, which is ever approaching very, very quickly. All of us have absolute certainty about it. But the key is, is that what steps are we putting in place for us to be able to prepare for that ultimate moment of truth? This is what preoccupies his mind. And this is what he did in these 40 books, each of which is crafted to have an alchemical effect upon you to change you. Because 40 is not only the number of habituation, it's a sacred number, it's the number of change. And it's the number that if you do something for 40 days, is that it tends to become a habit within you, and it becomes a part of you. And so each book is supposed to shed something from your ego, something that is allowing a veil of darkness to remain until is that you reach book 40, which is not an appendix, rather the culmination of the Ihya, which is the book on death and the afterlife. You're ready to meet your Lord. Having gone through all of these stages, and again, the Ihya is also circular because book 1 is related to book 40 in relation to Imam Ghazali's conception of knowledge, because book 40 is the culmination, but it's also the starting point. How is it the starting point? Every single last one of us is absolutely certain that we're going to die. And that's what motivated Imam Ghazali, to tread the path that he did, that led him to combine his incredible training in the many of the great disciplines of the Sharia with his traveling the spiritual path and to synthesize them seamlessly into two and then to encapsulate his experience in a work that has remained for over 900 years today. That there are so many manuscripts of this work is that it's virtually impossible to write, to, to collect a critical, to make a critical edition because it is all over the world and every that major that Islamic library, you have multiple copies of Hujjat al-Islam al-Ghazali's Ihya al And that this type of knowledge is the type of knowledge that people like Sheikh Faraz want to revive. The classes that he is offering on Seekers Hub that are all going to revive this meaning is that there are means for people all across the world to have access to it in an unbridled fashion. And I remember when the decision was made to make the classes free for everyone. I don't think people realize how much heat Sheikh Faraz took for that. And people thought that he wasn't very intelligent in doing so. Why not at least charge $10? Why not at least do this or do that? And you have to do fundraisers now because you're not charging people. But people are missing the point. Is that nothing is closer to the sunnah of our Prophet ﷺ than what he did. And the true people of Allah encouraged him to do that for no other reason than it was the right thing to do. And if it means that the people that have privilege have to give out from their wealth to support that, then this is the way that it has to be because this is the way that it's always been. And as Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib said in one of his amazing aphorisms, is that the people without will only suffer to the degree that the people that have enjoy. The people without will only suffer to the degree that people who have enjoy. 
And this applies in a physical sense in relation to livelihood, but it also applies in the religious sense in relation to our willingness to that support that causes for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sayyidah Aisha used to say is that if I had that one dirham and I was in the east and there was a student of knowledge in the west, I would send that money to the person in the west in order for them to learn. The greatest and most important thing that we can support of all is the preservation and the dissemination of the inheritance of Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And this takes me to my second point, which is, this work is the wajib al-waqt. In other words, is that this is the most important obligation of this time. We are building upon only what the people before us has done. And again, I want to always remind ourselves, because we must be appreciative. We are coming at this stage, and at the wake of a stage, that we have the luxury to speak how we are speaking. That we are assuming certain things in our discourse that 20 years ago you could not assume. That if you look at people that converted in the 70s or in the 80s, and you ask them about the resources that they had in their time, is that it was a totally different story, especially in the United States of America and in Canada. Is that what type of infrastructure was there? Where did people learn and how did they learn? There is a reason, and this was consistent with most places that Islam spread, is that the early generations struggled to even have a clear conception of their religion. And this is why there were so many heterodox that organizations and approaches to Islam, especially in the United States of America, because that true knowledge was not available to them. And we tend to forget this, but the pioneers who came before us that have that cleared the forest such that the path is so much more clear to us and we're enabled to travel in ways and to do things is that the people before us weren't able to do because is that there was still a forest there and now the roads are cleared and they're starting to be paved and this is why I believe that at this stage is that this is the stage of building this is the stage of building and all of the meanings of building. And I will say before I get into the institution is that the most important type of building is the building of the meanings of the deen in your heart. That's really what we mean. Because a structure without people is a mabna without a ma'na, is a physical structure without any meaning, is body without spirit. Is that yes, that we need buildings, but you need people that are going to bring those buildings to life. And the Prophet taught us that principle by making his masjid from the simplest of all materials. By living in a home that was the simplest of all materials. In other words, the meanings of the deen come first. But then the challenge of that generation becomes is that how can we build institutions in all of the meanings of institutions, because an institution could refer to an actual organization. It could refer to that physical structure that was just described, or in the original Latin sense of the word, is that it also could refer to something that has been established, whether that be law or even a practice. In other words, is that this is our mission of this time, is that how can we establish the best of what has come to us from the generations who came before us, from the traditional transmission of this religion back to the time of our Prophet 
himself, وسلم, such that this understanding becomes a staple part of their religious understanding. It becomes woven into the fabric of their experience of the religion. This, I believe, is the most greatest challenge of all that for this generation. And we have to entertain this idea in a very serious way. And we have to think about it. And we have to struggle for it. And even if some of it is still a bit ambiguous, which it is, and it probably won't get worked out for the next 50, maybe even 100 years, is that we have to move in the right direction. There are certain things that are clear. There are certain things that we know we can do. And if that becomes our preoccupation, as opposed to constantly being an armchair critic of anyone who's trying to do anything, is that you will find a blessing. And you will find baraka in the haraka then. You will find blessing in that movement, in that struggle, for what it is that you are striving towards, which is ultimately to that create a society whereby if for those who want it, they have access to the teachings of Sayyidina Muhammad And so building institutions and all of those meanings and facilitating for people that an authentic religious understanding and practice is, I believe, the single greatest uh, obligation and priority of our community. And that takes me to just the few things that I will say about Seekers Hub. And I say this as a supporter of Seekers Hub, not as someone who's calling to the institution. I believe in the sincerity of the people behind it, and I believe there's something very special about them. And when I think of Seekers, the one word that really sticks out in my mind is reach. And that word has many meanings, but the two that I think of is that in terms of it being an online platform and a lot of people benefiting worldwide, quite literally, but also in the other meaning of sticking your hand out to actually help people. There's something about this, this dual meaning of reach is that it's not just about that getting them to sign up for classes. It's well beyond that. It's not just about getting them to support a cause. It's a genuine desire to want to see people flourish. They want to see people in a good state that then will lead to that bliss in the next world in the most sincere and honest of ways. And this is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has blessed Seekers Hub with. And anyone who's taught a class for Seekers will know that at any given time, it's hard to count, but there's over 30 countries represented. Now, I have noticed that there's a lot of Afghanistans, and I think, I'm assuming, that it must be the first country in the list for those that don't actually choose their country, by default it goes to Afghanistan, because I find it hard to believe, even though I know you're originally from Afghanistan, I'm sure your people love you, that there's that many from Afghanistan. But anyhow, my wife's from Afghanistan, so I can talk about Afghans. Anyhow, uh, that, that... at any given time, there's over 30 countries. And I, one of the things I love to do in the first uh, live session is I ask what class everyone is taking. I ask where they're tuning in from. And it's amazing. The international, you're literally in a live session with people all over the world. It's amazing to think about that. And that this is why we absolutely must support this. And I want to close because I only have a few minutes with the following. And this is taken from the school that I studied in, 
And they have what is called the maqasid al-thalatha, which is, for all intents and purposes, that the agreed-upon principles of how we must approach this religion. And it's threefold. You have knowledge, devotion, and service. Ilm, suluk, and da'wah. And I believe this is a part of, a, a, an important part of reviving the deen in our particular time, is that every believer, their conception of the deen and what they need to do in relation to it includes these three dimensions. Because they're learning objectives, but they're also that ladders of ascension and know how we practice the religion. And the first is knowledge. We all have to have knowledge. Be rooted in that sacred knowledge. And then approach all other knowledge from the true cognitive frame that we receive through prophecy. And then you have the aspect of suduk, which is devotion. A constant attempt to attain sincerity, to rid your heart of the vices and to adorn it with the virtues. To travel the path of drawing near to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which means is that you study the science of the purification of the heart, strive with yourself to make that a reality within yourself, and do you do things like that pray with presence of mind and to say litanies and recite the Quran and so forth. But then the third dimension, both of those relate to your own self. The third dimension is the dimension of service, which is to me the best way to translate the word da'wah. It relates to the external dimension, how you and I interact and interface with people. And in the broadest understanding of this, this relates to everyone, even the person in their home prostrating, asking Allah Ta'ala to alleviate the suffering of the ummah is a caller to Allah Ta'ala because they're in service of them. And that is, with this definition, something that every single last one of us can do. And I believe that as believers, as we proceed forth as, commun- as individuals in community, is that if we can make our focus these three areas is that we try to have a balance of them, is that ultimately it will lead to the greatest good, not for our, only for ourselves, but for other people as well. But it's the first one that I just want to translate something for in closing that I think that shows why this online dimension, which it's, that is so important. And it goes as follows. تعليم العلوم الشرعية على وجه التحقيق والطريقة الموروثة مع الأخذ بالوصائل والأساليب الحديثة النافعة وربط بالواقع لتيسير التطبيق. Learning the sciences of the sacred law with an unbroken chain and an established in the established traditional way while utilizing the beneficial modern methods and ways of instruction in relating it to the present time, i.e. making it relevant to the times in order to facilitate practice. Allahu Akbar. When I read that, which is where I studied, this is one of the things that draws me to what Sheikh Faraz is doing through seekers. I see it as that. I see what he's doing synonymous with this definition, which I believe to be that one of the most important things that we need to spend our time doing in this time, may Allah Ta'ala, that give this affair and endeavor, tawfiq, may Allah Ta'ala, that revive this deen in our hearts and in the hearts of other people. And the last thing I will say, and this is the third time I've said that, and this is the final time I'll say it, is that don't underestimate your potential. Don't underestimate your potential. And know that in underestimating your potential, you're subtly having su of adab with Allah. 
You are subtly having a bad opinion of your Lord. You are subtly having bad etiquette with your Lord. Because our Prophet taught us to have high spiritual aspiration. If you ask for something, even if you don't see yourself as deserving, you ask for Firdaus al-A'la, the highest level of Firdaus. فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَتَعَظَمْهُ شَيْءٍ Nothing is too great for Allah to give you. And this relates to the work that we're doing in the community. What we want to see happen here in a rebirth, in a spread, in an explosion, in the nicest of ways, of course, metaphorically speaking. Let me use another word choice here. That in terms of spread of the light of Sayyidina Muhammad, much more benign, then that believe that this can happen. But the secret of that is, is that your and I's religious practice in living its realities, when it is reflected in our own selves, then and only then, when your actions speak louder than your words, when your state is actually calling people to something before you even utter a word, this is when it's going to really happen. In other words, when we be. May Allah Ta'ala give us tawfiq to do this and give us that bless us in all of our different affairs. Thank you for listening to this Seekers Hub podcast. Our goal is to raise $75,000 in monthly donations to build a global Islamic seminary so that dedicated students all over the world can complete their journeys and become Islamic scholars. You can help them by becoming a monthly donor at seekershub.org slash donate.